0: Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, Wisdom Labs Parneet Paul talks with Emiliana Simon Thomas. Emiliana Simon Thomas, PhD, is a science director at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. She oversees the student research fellowship program, runs key initiatives and co-teaches Berkeley X's landmark online program, The Science of Happiness. She serves as an expert voice on human pro-sociality, as well as empirically supported approaches to fostering a kinder, more compassionate society worldwide. She advises organizations on boosting happiness, both from a product perspective and through policies aimed at enhancing a culture of trust, agility, and well-being. In this episode, Emiliana references an upcoming program entitled Foundations of Happiness at Work. There's a link in the show notes. And now, Emiliana Simon-Thomas, interviewed by Parneet Paul.
1: Welcome to the Wise at Work podcast, Emiliana. Thank you so much for inviting me, it's such an honor.
2: So Aristotle said that happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life the whole aim and end of human existence. And in the 21st century, there's no dearth of books and programs and articles and happiness gurus out there. And yet when we look at the state of our mental health, we find that anxiety and depression rates are increasing, loneliness is becoming an epidemic. And so it seems that for most of us, happiness continues to be quite elusive. And as one of the world's leading researchers in this area somebody who studies and teaches about what makes life more meaningful you have said that most of us when we think of happiness we get it wrong Hmm. so i'd love for you to start by telling us how we might think about happiness differently
1: Yeah, that's such a great and key question in this whole conversation about human happiness. And there are two main ways that I think people get happiness wrong. One of them is in how we think about where happiness comes from. So many of us watch television, listen to the radio, look at magazines. We follow popular media. And what that tells us is that luxury, pleasure, achievement, status, all of these sorts of delightful experiences are at the root of human happiness. And it builds this idea that we could be happy by trying to string together like a perpetual sequence of pleasurable, joyful, enthusiastic moments. In fact, that turns out not to be the case. And the second way we get it wrong is similar, which is that we think happiness is a specific and temporary emotional experience. So the science of emotions has spent decades trying to figure out how many emotions are there precisely? Are there six? Are there 27? Are there an infinite number? We can describe emotions in an in infinite number of ways through language, but what does the science have to say? And actually, the truth is, is the science hasn't had a consensus around precisely how many emotions there are. We know that emotions vary and how energetic they are or how positive or negative they are. All that aside, a lot of people think that happiness, that lifelong human happiness is the same as that momentary experience of pleasure or joy or pride or amusement that happens in relationship to a specific moment. In fact, again, those are emotions, and they're about a particular context, and they don't necessarily manifest happiness in life. What we understand happiness in life to be about is something broader, a bigger characteristic of how we think about ourselves and the lives we lead. You brought up the word meaning earlier, absolutely. Feeling like what you do and where you stand in the world matters and has a meaningful impact personally in the community that you function in and perhaps for human beings at large is a big part of human happiness. And then the second part is a general ease with which you experience those positive emotions. So those are part of happiness, but they don't actually make happiness or promise happiness particularly if we strive for them. So yeah, happiness, again, is this ease with which you feel positive states, a capacity to recover from life's difficult moments, not to suppress or avoid them, but to recover from them when they occur, and a sense that your life matters and that you're doing something meaningful. This is so important, especially this part about
2: finding what brings meaning to your life. And this is crucial as we think about Happiness at work, which is the focus of our conversation today, a lot of us derive that meaning and sense of purpose from the work that we do in our everyday lives, and unfortunately, a lot of us find that we're really unhappy doing what we do. So we're going to get into a little bit of why that might be and what we can do about it. But I really wanted to underscore what you just said. You know, we read the World Happiness Reports that come out every year, and these global surveys of different countries that are quote-unquote happiest. And, you know, the Scandinavian countries and other northern European countries are invariably amongst the top five. And it's very interesting, you know, when I went back and looked at the domains that they measure, it reflects exactly what you said. It's not about measuring those momentary states of happiness, but really a reflection of your overall state of well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Are they reporting that I am
1: happy in general with my life? Yeah, that's absolutely right. There are also limitations to the World Happiness Report items. They're a little bit more tightly aligned with what we might call satisfaction with life. So the item that they use is this picture of a ladder. And it says, all things considered, how would you write your life from worst possible life to best possible life? And if you're putting your mark higher up, closer to the 10th rung, then you score higher in happiness. And it's debatable about whether your thoughts looking backward about the quality of your life are in a profound enough way capturing your sentiments about your life, right? Do you really feel like you were happy or do you feel like things went pretty well for you? And those are a little bit different and Daniel Kahneman has done research to show that life satisfaction and sort of life happiness do kind of shift in how they relate to things like income or again, status or other measures of societal success. There's a lot more in happiness that has to do with our relationships. And how supportive we are towards others, how supported we feel by others, how much authentic benevolence we exchange with other people. And that sometimes isn't part of the calculus of life satisfaction. As
2: you speak about these relationships and how important they are, I want us to start thinking about happiness at work. And if I'm a leader at work who has a team that reports to me, or I'm a CEO, I'm an HR manager. As an employer, why should I even be thinking about the happiness of my employees? I mean, what's in it for me? Isn't happiness sort of our personal prerogative? Aren't we just responsible for what we do on our own?
1: Yeah, so that's a really common perspective that leaders and C level executives hold. That really it's not my job to to manage other people's happiness. They should figure it out for themselves. And You know, if happiness was completely about every individual and everything that they did independently, then there might be some truth to that perspective. But in fact, happiness isn't. Happiness is also about, again, our relationships. It's about our context, right? I mean, you can imagine being in a very unpleasant circumstance or environment and -hmm. then being told, "Okay, now you need to figure out how to be happy, right? (laughs) I mean, that's not fair. And people are exquisitely sensitive. to fairness. So if you're being told to be happy in a context that's grossly unfair, you have a lot of competition in sort of the motivations that drive your decisions and your behavior. So if leaders care about loyalty, from their employees if they care about people sticking around tenure people rising up in positions of leadership on their own right of developing into leaders themselves it's in their interest to create an environment that actually puts happiness within reach for the people working in their organizations And this is not just a good idea or thought. There's uh,
2: very good research behind what you've just said in terms of the levels of engagement and productivity and so on. Is there some statistic that particularly stands out for you that you'd like to share?
1: You know, it's such a great question, and it's tricky to answer because a lot of the research doesn't use the word happiness, Mm. right? A lot of the research uses the words that you just mentioned, like engagement, purpose maybe resilience yes maybe kindness right and yeah. so absolutely when workers are more engaged, they are anywhere from 40 to 70% more productive. In companies or organizations where the culture is one of kindness, of levity and benevolence, there's more innovation. When leaders are perceived as warm, employees are, again, more loyal. They're more creative. When people feel good, they come up with more creative and innovative solutions to problems. So, I do kind of shy away from throwing out specific percentages, like 45%, 20%, or 80%, only because they're all tied to a particular construct, which is what I would call kind of a pillar of happiness. Mm-hmm. So happiness at work isn't just one thing in and of itself. It is kind of the product of multiple ingredients, like baking a cake, mm-hmm. right? You're not just going to Say, okay, I'm putting cake into my cake to make a cake, right? You put all these (laughs) Although I wish
2: I could do that.
1: (laughs) And then you put other things in it. You put the flour and the eggs and the butter and the salt and the baking powder and the chocolate, whatever it is. All of those things in the right proportions, depending on the kind of cake you're trying to make, it work for you and happiness functions in a similar way. Wonderful. So as I'm thinking about this cake that I want to bake in my own
2: workday every single day, I think it would be fun and also useful for us to maybe design how we can optimize a workday for happiness. So starting when I wake up in the morning, is there something in my morning routine or even when I get to work, the first thing that I do, what is the science telling us about what we can do there to sort of prime ourselves to have a happier day?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things that really matters is how we frame arriving at work, what our intentions are going to work, and really considering that before we walk in the door. We could think of work as a long list of obligatory duties and stressful tasks that are overwhelming us, or we can think of work as these remarkable opportunities to do things that we really want to do, and we want to do them because we know they're somehow connected to our purpose, our sense of what's meaningful, right? We value certain things as people. Maybe it's aesthetic beauty. Maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's human joy. Maybe it's sort of technological solutions to widespread health problems. You know, these basic ideas and drivers for what we do The more we remember them and consider them and think about each day that we work, in terms of how it contributes to that, the better we're going to feel walking in the door. The more motivated we'll feel. The more we're going to think, again, of each task as something that brings us closer to that goal that really matters to who we are as a person.
2: I love that. And it also reminds me of this concept of how our mindset plays a huge role in our experience of life so even if we're involved in a mundane task perhaps just shifting the mindset to, yes, this is really tedious for me right now, but in the end, this is going to help me get closer to that meaning or that purpose that I'm working so hard for. And one of the practices that I know is very powerful in my life every day as I start my day is exactly that, a short meditation that includes setting an intention for the day, whatever that might be, and that I can remind myself of throughout the day. But not all of us are lucky to be working in jobs that are aligned with our meaning and our purpose. So what advice might you have for somebody who is in a position like that?
1: So even the most perhaps undesirable jobs, and I think this would differ for each individual, but there have been research studies of telemarketers. I don't know if anybody feels like that's what I've been dying (laughs) to do is call strangers on the phone and try to get them to (laughs) donate or buy something. Even studies of fundraisers over the phone, and this is research by Adam Grant and Francesca Gino, when you remind those people that what they're doing makes a difference to a particular other group of people or person in specific, that idea that, hey... While this might feel tedious, any extent to which I'm benefiting somebody else really does kind of fuel that sense of motivation. It might not always be obvious, right? What is it? How is it that this little thing I'm doing, this phone call I'm making, talking to this person who's maybe even you know adversarial to what i'm requesting from them or maybe they hung up on me or they were rude how does that experience sort of fit into this idea that i'm contributing to the educational opportunity of a young person who might otherwise not have it well that's how right there right you think in your moment okay that happened it's not really a reflection of me or my worth or my potential for success It was a little hard step in the path towards doing this thing that really matters, which is helping another human being flourish in this life. Beautiful.
2: Now that we've started the day off on a good note, and as we continue to connect with our intentions throughout the day, what we notice is that we actually have to work with other people, (laughs) whether we like it or not. Uh, So whether they're our teammates, the people that report to us or we report to. And of course, we know now that the strength of our social relationships is a huge predictor of our well-being and our health. And yet, when it comes to work, and I think our culture in general, there's such an emphasis and a lot of reward around Standing out, Mm -hmm. competing, being independent, being a self-made person, hustling, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and so on. And this really flies in the face of what we know about how we evolved as human beings, Mm -hmm. you know. And so I'd love for you to explain a little bit about why that's so crucial and perhaps even allude to the social baseline theory here why are
1: relationships so important yeah it's such a great question and i love that you brought up the social baseline theory because it's one of my favorite ideas so yeah workplaces kind of have strangely held on to this vestigial notion of what it means to be human and that it's about survival of the fittest in a kind of erroneous darwinian interpretation, that fitness means being huge, fierce, vicious, capable of overcoming any other conspecific, to use (laughs) an evolutionary term, when in fact, human beings we're not that we never have been we're small we're hairless <laughs> for the <laughs> well, most some part of us. <laughs> <laughs> we we can't really stand a chance against some of the larger species on this planet with much sharper teeth or claws or strength and so our success has emerged from our capacity to coordinate to cooperate to work together to care for vulnerable others. That's how we've been successful. We're what you would call ultra social. Mm -hmm. We're not like mountain lions. We don't pee around a perimeter, and then bite anybody who crosses that line. We function in these very tight-knit, complex social systems. We fold into communities and coordinate efforts in order to achieve things. This is just how evolution has kind of afforded our success the social baseline theory. So researchers in social neuroscience have been trying to understand which systems in the brain really kind of drive us to cooperate, to be empathetic, to be generous. And the approach is to take people into a laboratory and put them into a brain scanner, an fMRI scanner. And you put one person into a scanner, and you measure their brain while they're doing some kind of task. And then you put two people into, to neighboring scanners, and you have them do some kind of cooperative task, and the one person is considered the control or the baseline, right? Nothing's happening here in the one-person condition. This is the natural state. The two-person condition is the experiment. Researchers Alan Cohn and David Sabara realized that what was going on was that that isolated condition, being alone in a scanner, was actually stressful. That's considered a situation or a circumstance where you lack core resources. And thus came up with this notion that humans consider each other a bio-behavioral resource. I rely on you, like it or not, for important resources (laughs) to support my survival. And so the baseline is not being alone, Mm -hmm. but the baseline is together. And so that's the kind of origin of the social baseline theory. And it really tells us about workplaces and the extent to which most work, even if you're an independent contractor with a home office, right, you're still interacting with people The work that you're doing is serving something about humanity. You have customers or clients or maybe you're a writer and you send your pieces off to a journal or a magazine. All of that is other human beings. And so that collective activity is the essence of the impact that the work you're doing can have. I love what
2: you said. You know, I had chills down my spine when you said, we rely on each other and that the essence of being human is doing things together. I think that word is so powerful, doing something together. And this becomes even more important when we think about as leaders in the workplace, creating a culture of psychological safety for our teams. Absolutely. And for those of you who might be listening and not aware of this term, it simply means having a level of trust and respect in your culture that allows you to show up as you are, to be able to make mistakes, and to sort of have this confidence that, you know, even if things don't go the way you planned, that your teammates have your back.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: How do we even begin to cultivate cultures like this? I mean, you've alluded to the the capacities of empathy and compassion. So is there
1: something there that we can tap into? most certainly empathy and compassion are great strategies or practices or qualities that an organization can aspire to build and i make it sound like the organization is somehow a person to the extent that leaders do personify organizations it does end up landing on the leaders to exhibit to model these kinds of qualities and characteristics I would start a little bit back, though, maybe two or three steps back to the word that you mentioned, which is authenticity, mm-hmm. being able to bring your true self to work. Mm-hmm. Tina Opie at Babson College is a researcher who I admire deeply for her work on the value of authenticity in the workplace, being able to come in and be yourself. Now, there's some controversy. You'll hear some people say, "Ah, oh, you shouldn't do that because your self is flawed or you're going to say things that are rude or obnoxious or somehow hostile or you know not constructive. You should leave that at home or at the bar or wherever you go to recreate. I'd like to just be really clear that authenticity doesn't mean a kind of free-for-all wild card to come in and act in ways that you know are going to hurt other people. Authenticity is more about being honest in your emotional sort of experiences. So if you're feeling sad about something... That's an important piece of information to share with somebody who you're trying to coordinate effort with mm-hmm. because they need to know that that is where your mind and your heart are, mm-hmm. right? And to take that into consideration. If you're angry, it's an important thing to honor and respect and bring into the calculus of how to work together. Um we can't continue this notion of again happiness being about, you know, stifling or pushing away or avoiding all of these important emotional states that Inform our decisions and our behaviors and our social interactions in meaningful ways. So authenticity is really important, and, and leaders need to exhibit that. I think leaders have a lot of pressure to be like stoic, and you know maybe the already convinced ones to be cheerful and enthusiastic and <laughs> exuberant and always tell their employees how wonderful they are and give them praise. and And while that's really great, it's not a real picture of what human existence involves which is, we're going to have loss. Mm-hmm. We're going to realize that we're surrounded by some kind of injustice. Mm-hmm. All right? We're going to have threats. And those are tied to sadness, anger, and fear. And those are real parts of what it means to be human. And we get more out of our social interactions when we share those in authentic ways. And that sort
2: of leads me to this whole rich area of managing conflict Mm -hmm. at work or when you're disagreeing with your colleagues. And, you know, that's part of our workday for sure. And we know from conflict management research that, you know, there are more passive and active ways of managing this. And some passive ways might be just, as you mentioned, just avoiding it or just suppressing your emotions and letting things be. But they're also brewing as you let them be. And the other might be you're just accommodating, you're just yielding to Mm -hmm what the other person is saying, and so you don't advocate for your own self. So what might some more active and more effective ways of managing conflict be?
1: Yeah, well, I'll just give a little bit of evidence for what you just said, which is Karsten de Drew in Holland has been writing about conflict in the workplace for 10, 15 years, and has been basically showing that when organizations systematically stifle conflict, this is associated with higher stress across the organization. Everybody who's working there is less content if the culture is about trying to stifle or Mm -hmm. avoid conflict in the ways that you just mentioned. Productive conflict management involves a problem-solving approach. So really acknowledging that both people have a role in Mm -hmm. the situation, being Capable of hearing the other person's perspective, really listening to what their experience is, honoring the fact that you bring something to the conflict and that the other person brings something to the conflict, and aspiring to kind of come up with a, an integrative solution. Like, what can we do to transcend this barrier that's happening right now as a result of some misunderstanding between us? I may have made it sound easier said than done. <laughs> Sometimes managing conflict takes a long time. But it's a long view advantage, right? The short view is I'm just going to avoid this. It'll just pass. What we know is when people avoid negative emotions, they get cardiovascular illness, right? It's not healthy to stifle or avoid contexts or experiences that are negative.
2: Yeah, and it's also sort of the short road to burnout, yeah. uh, which a lot of us are experiencing. You also have spoken in the past about some very interesting studies around one of the ways that we can navigate a disagreement we might be having with a colleague that involves walking.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is a recent paper that I came across, and I'm tickled by it. I think it's wonderful, and I've been trying to bring it into my own experiences, both at home and at work. I have three kids, and so (laughs) conflict is a big part of my (laughs) everyday life. (laughs) One of them's 13. Yeah, so these researchers just compared groups of people who were put in a position of talking through a disagreeable topic, Mm -hmm. either sitting, or standing in one position or walking down the street and what they found was that when people were walking down the street The physical experience of movement forward, this is their interpretation, actually gears people towards that same kind of forward movement in terms of their interpersonal conflict in that moment. And so people who were walking while they were trying to work something out reached a moment of reconciliation more quickly and more productively than people who were, you know, standing their ground (laughs) while they were having these same kinds of conversations. So yeah, I mean, it's tricky, but... Also, not. Sometimes we can use these circumstantial or environmental tools to make it easier for us to work through conflicts with our colleagues at work. I love that. And
2: more walking meetings for all. Yeah. (laughs) No, I love that. I love the fact that just the mere act of walking together is not only good for us physiologically, we know that there's more blood going to your brain, you think better, you have more creative ideas, but that very act of doing something together with another person sparks or feels
1: that sense of greater empathy Thank you for reminding me about that. So Dave Desteno at Northeastern has been studying a coordinated physical activity between people. So if you get two people into a laboratory setting, and you teach them both the same finger tapping sequence, and two of them are doing it precisely in unison, synchrony with one another, and the others are doing it kind of off time, out of sequence with one another, they're all tapping the same thing. And then you ask them how similar they feel to each other, or how much they like the other person. Uh And those who were doing the synchronized activity, and and this is what happens when we walk. We tend to mirror each other. We tend to try, even in unconscious ways, to step in the same pace as the other person. Mm -hmm. If their right foot goes forward, you want yours to go forward at the same time. And that unified, synchronous physical movement gives us a greater sense of common humanity with Mm -hmm. the other, and that drives our sense of empathy and our skills at listening, And, and, and that's so important to resolving or reconciling a conflict. Fantastic. So, so far, we're having a good work day. We've set our intention. We've
2: connected with our value and purpose. We're learning to have more walking meetings. We're learning to manage our disagreements in a more effective way. We're building the sense of trust and collaboration and really honing our empathy and compassion. And, you know, when we look at the environment around us at work, you know, a lot of the times companies rely on various perks, like free laundry or free food or ping pong tables. Can a company perk its way to its employees' happiness?
1: So company perks are part of the perhaps deleterious misinformation about what can give rise to happiness at work. Yes, we may see the Silicon Valley companies with the dry cleaning services and the Thursday night keg (laughs) gatherings and various other game rooms or video game consoles, whatever they are. Which, again, are aimed at trying to maximize those moments of positive emotion. Mm -hmm. And while, again, we do know that positive emotions play an important role in being able to look back and say, yes, I'm a happy person at work or work feels happy to me, stringing together a sort of sequence of, oh, well, first I talked to my friend and, you know, we had some ice cream and then I played ping pong and then I, you know, went to the (laughs) other wonderful place and had a massage." And then I got a haircut and all (laughs) these things end up really not being work for the first part, and two, they're not really contributing in precise enough ways to what we know brings us that sense of meaningful impact at work. Now, there are some perks that really do make a difference to happiness, and the ones that matter are the ones that contribute to an important piece of happiness at work that we really haven't talked about yet, and that is our resilience. How agile are we in the face of challenges or setbacks? you alluded to being able to fail and feel okay about it when you were mm-hmm. talking about psychological safety. But there's also a personal dimension to that that has to do with how we organize our workday. Do we have enough time allocated to space? Not everyone wants to socialize all the time. Not every email or Text message or notification from a social media platform is helpful to our well being at work. In fact, we need to have periods of uninterrupted effort. We call this flow, right? This is the state of getting so immersed in a task or an endeavor that you lose track of time. And it's intrinsically rewarding. And it's challenging, but not so challenging that you feel overwhelmed, but not tediously boring. So these periods of flow, and you know, they can be anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours, are really valuable assets to our happiness at work and perks in a funny way. It can kind of distract us from those. So the perks at work are our efforts to make those periods of flow or uninterrupted effort more available to us. So maybe it's something along the lines of a halt in email expectation. Mm-hmm. Like so from 10 to 12, you're not expected to reply to an email that comes because this is your flow time. Right. Or maybe it's if you're a new parent, a very supportive approach to facilitating your childcare needs. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of creating a situation that parents have to go to one place and you know, pay the fees at one place and pick up and drop off. And instead, can workplaces look to a company like Patagonia that has 100 percent retention mm-hmm. of new parents because they're incredibly supportive in terms of their child care facilities? on site. Those kinds of perks really matter. Time off, really valuing the idea that we don't get much more productive after 40 hours. 40 hours is a little bit arbitrary anyway, but people who work six to eight hours are more productive. They get more done than people who work eight to 10 hours a day. Morton Hansen has written about this. He's a professor of management at UC Berkeley. There's just a drop off. We think, oh, if I work 60 hours, 80 hours, 100 hours. We're like the champion. It's mm-hmm. this badge. And it's how we talk to each other in social life. How are you doing? Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so busy. Right? Which in a weird way is also a way to say, don't talk to me anymore. I'm too busy to hear exactly. you even. So yeah. can we introduce the kinds of perks that give people a sense of agency over their time? Mm-hmm. It's okay. It's okay to leave when you need to go and spend meaningful time with your family. Mm-hmm. People who... Off work, recover through social activities, do better the next day, Mm -hmm. right? They're more engaged at work the next day. They're more energetic. They sleep better. So when leaders can model what I like to call work-life harmony. I don't like the idea of work-life balance because it makes it seem like they're kind of, you have to pit them against each other. Mm -hmm. But instead, bringing your authentic self to work, working in a way that supports your home life and allowing your home and off-work life to be something that actually supports your work life, perks that support that, those really are effective.
2: I'd love to get your quick-fire take on a few aspects of the future of work, because that's something that all of us are thinking about. We're thinking about our careers during the workday as well. You know, where am I going to be 5, 10, 20 years Mm -hmm. down the line? And there's a lot of anxiety and uncertainty because the landscape of work is changing tremendously. So I'd love to hear, you know, both challenges, opportunities. First, when it comes to the gig or sharing economy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the sharing and gig economy, I really feel like that's a reflection of Regular rank and file workplaces not acknowledging the basic need for autonomy. Mm-hmm. There's this idea that, well, people just come in, we tell them what to do, we give them very specific structure. They do that in their, you know, 40 hour clock in, clock out weeks. A lot of humans don't like that. They'll take a much less secure, much fewer perk <laughs> kind of lifestyle working in order to have that self-determination around what they do and when they do it and how they do it. I'm hoping that work does slowly shift towards a greater kind of scaffolding of autonomy and self-determination for workers. People just do more when they have that. They feel better about what they're doing. They derive more meaning from it because somehow they've invested their own kind of effort and sentiment into it rather than it being like a top-down command sort of orientation where they feel obliged. I think one of the big topics that I actually spoke about in Malaysia last year is artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and this idea that, well, what's going to happen? We're all going to lose our jobs. And one of the most memorable comments for me amidst this kind of panic stricken series of presentations about how, you know, apocalypse was coming because nobody was going to have a job anymore. Somebody got up there and he was like, hey, Let's not fetishize work, right? Being a person who has to go somewhere for 60, 70 hours a week is not healthy. If we had a way to create an environment where people could earn livable wages working 20, 30 hour weeks, and then we could delegate some of the busy work, we might Mm -hmm. call it, or the tedious stuff to artificial intelligence, well that sounds pretty good to me. Now, I'm not someone who can champion or empirically advocate for shorter work weeks. But I do think the myth that overworking is somehow a service to us is pretty well dispelled. Frank Flynn at Stanford writes about it too. It's just not something that helps us. So I'm optimistic, My role at that meeting in Malaysia was to talk about what is lacking from artificial intelligence and what they wanted me to talk about, which was very easy for me, was, well you know, algorithms aren't built with pro-social motivations. Mm -hmm. They're not built as an ultra-social enterprise. And maybe there's ways to think about that. Like if one algorithm starts to (laughs) not work as well, will another algorithm stop what it's doing and then try to take care of that (laughs) algorithm that's starting not to work so well? That would be really interesting. And that might lend more promise to the possibility that there will be a fruitful way to blend humans spending fewer hours of their everyday life at a desk and computers or algorithms or artificial intelligence taking on some of the more tedious work that that humans don't want to do anyway.
2: I completely second your optimistic view of the future. And I think some of the leaders in artificial intelligence development now are thinking about those exact same things. How can they align the development of these technologies more towards our basic human values and not the other way around. So now that I've had a meaningful workday and I'm back home, is there something that I can end my day with? Is there a simple practice that I can do so that I can have a restful sleep?
1: Yeah. So one of the fun ones, and this is drawn from Teresa Amabile's work, is to credit yourself for the progress that you made. And so I would just call it three small wins. A lot of the work that we do isn't to have, you know, built a car in one day, but (laughs) to do one very small piece of a much bigger aim that takes many years to accomplish. And we can get lost in that sense of not being an important part of the system or of the endeavor. And so, yeah, can we take a moment to go, okay, I did have this long list. Here are the three things I got done today. I really did. I can cross them off. Even something as simple as I worked out something that was unclear with a colleague, and now I know what to do next. That's a win, right? We got to really credit ourselves for the little achievements that we make each day, the progress that we make each day that makes us feel like we're making a meaningful contribution to the organization or the company that we're working for. So three small wins is a fun one. Another one that's also going to start with 3 that I like and we haven't talked that much about is called three funny things. Workplaces can be really really serious. People can walk in and just spend the whole day with, you know, a furrowed brow and a tightened lip and stiff shoulders. And really there are some occupations where it is a life or death matter and that level of seriousness has to be there. But Most occupations aren't. And when it's not that serious, I think that there's a lot to be said for levity, for bringing a little bit of lightness into your workday and engaging with others in a way that lets us feel amused for a moment about something. Of course, there's sort of positive and more hostile ways to do that. So, An organization who wants to bring more amusement or laughter into their company might want to look into the more constructive kinds of humor versus the, you know, singling someone out or making someone feel bad kind of humor. But that constructive humor can really lighten the mood and just bring a sense of ease and connection into the culture of a workplace. So, yeah, write down three things that were funny that happened that day. These are all just exercises in kind of training your mind to Bring to awareness those experiences that we know are important for feeling happy about your day, rather than letting it sort of reflexively ruminate on the things that make you feel bad about your work. I love
2: the idea that we can end our work day feeling just a little more grateful for the things that went well and also extending a little bit of kindness towards ourselves for the things that we did get right or even the things that went wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, just So just a little more self-compassion there yeah. as well. So, Miliana, the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley has been hosting an amazingly successful, massive open online course on the science of happiness, and you are now launching a new one on September 4th, 2018. How can our listeners access that course? Could you tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, our course is called Foundations of Happiness at Work. It is the first in a series of three courses. The first one launches in September, as you said, the first Tuesday in September. September the 2nd and 3rd launch the second Tuesday in January largely because we wanted to not land right on New Year's Day and they are called mindfulness and resilience to stress at work and empathy and emotional intelligence at work and all three of these courses together are part of a professional certificate series on the science of happiness at work it is hosted on the edx platform so edx.org they're free. If you do want to obtain the professional certificate, there is a cost associated with it and Mm -hmm. you have to verify your identity and all that. But for everyone around the world, we're really hoping to bring the practical tools and insights about happiness into their toolbox so that they can build a greater version of themselves both in life and in work. And again, for the reasons we've discussed, workplaces are a great environment to begin to offer this information.
2: Wonderful. I mean, we spend most of our day at work. And having taken the Science of Happiness course the first time around, I can vouch for how amazing it is and how much I learned. Thank you for that. I hope lots of people will avail of this incredible free opportunity to make themselves happier at work. So thank you so much, Emiliana. It's been amazing having you on our podcast. Thank you for all the work that you do, all the teaching that you do that help the rest of us make our lives a little more meaningful. Thank you.
0: Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world. And as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.